Bring it in. Week one of college football is in the books. Welcome into the read option. I got a solo episode, kind of. We do have a guest today, my good friend Josh Neighbors. He is the host of the Locked On Big 12 podcast from the Locked On Podcast Network. A great podcast, especially for any of you Big 12 fans out there. But they got all the conferences. They got all of your NFL teams. They do tremendous work over there at Locked On. We talked everything about week one, broke down the big games, talked a good amount about the Big 12. But we, we sprinkled in a little bit of everything. And so for our kind of open here, I'm going to spend just a little bit of time giving some just general thoughts about college football week one here as we are now getting ready for week one of the NFL. But look, we had college football back in full steam. I, I can't even begin to describe how awesome it was. I was up Saturday morning, went for a run, did some work around the house. And I was just, I was itching, man, because I was so ready for that Saturday slate. And it was a loaded loaded slate i mean indiana and iowa wisconsin penn state you know and that was just within our first couple games then you had alabama and miami obviously the clemson georgia game being the headliner for the day the ucla and lsu game which i mean that game was wild i am still trying to i even went back and was watching some of it again earlier today trying to really put together what that game even was, you know, what was that? Like LSU, this team full of five-star guys, SEC defensive players, SEC offensive linemen, Derek Stingley Jr., a guy who was thought to be maybe a top five to 10 draft pick as a cornerback in the NFL draft next season, getting worked by UCLA's wide receivers in one-on-ones in man-to-man, which is supposed to be his absolute strength. LSU, when we talked about the season preview going into the season, I thought they were going to have a good year, but it was either a good year or they were going to be bad. I didn't see a middle ground here. And losing your opener, albeit they did have everything with the hurricane, the traveling, they had to stay in Texas and then fly to L.A. And they went through a lot to get in preparation for that game. But from what I saw, I mean, Max Johnson showed a couple of flashes of being a really good player. Uh, and we think he still could be, but the decision-making was slow, holding on to the ball too long. There were some amazing passes. There was also some drops. But to me, trying to distinguish, did LSU not come to play or was UCLA really that good? It's a really hard question to answer. And I think it's a little bit of both. I think UCLA is a really good team. Weirdly enough, after the horrendous start to the opening season, you know, to the season that the Pac-12 had, Oregon barely holding on to beat Fresno State, and they were down late in the fourth quarter. The Pac-12 is in some trouble already, and their best hope, their best chance of making the college football playoff as we stand right now, which again, they haven't been back since Washington, which I believe was five years ago. Their best chance to get a team into the college football playoff right now is UCLA. 
And yes, they're 2-0. They stomped Hawaii. They played the Week 0 game. That definitely helped. DTR looked phenomenal going up against those guys at LSU. But if LSU ends up having kind of a rough season, that Week 1 win is not going to look or feel the way that it feels right now at the end of the season. Now, if LSU comes back, they end up winning 10 games, 9 games, it's going to look like an awesome win. But that's kind of the tricky part with these these week one wins. And now you look at Oregon. Yes, Oregon barely held on to beat Fresno State, but they have a massive opportunity ahead of them here in week two. They are taking on Ohio State in Columbus. Last year, they were supposed to host Ohio State as a home and home, but because the non-conference schedules and everything with COVID kind of kicked in and, and teams were decided to play conference-only schedules or conferences decided to play conference-only schedules, Oregon has to go to Columbus this year. Now, if they win in Columbus, that's going to be the best win of the year, aside from maybe Georgia beating Clemson in on Saturday night. And we'll get to that, that game in a little bit. But the Pac-12 is in some trouble here. I loved what I saw at UCLA. I didn't love what I saw from basically anyone else. Shout out to the Montana Grizzlies. Uh, first time in five years, an FCS team has beaten a ranked FBS team. The last time was Iowa when they knocked off, or sorry, it was not, it was North Dakota State when they knocked off Iowa. And that was five years ago. Uh, there's been a couple other ones. JMU was on that list. There's only been five or I think this might have been the sixth. Uh, or it might have been the fifth. I don't have the exact list up in front of me, but JMU beat Virginia Tech as an as a FBS, FCS team, beating a ranked FBS team. Uh, but Washington, 20 in the country. And look, we've talked about it on this pod multiple times. When you are a preseason ranked team, it really doesn't mean anything. But by the end of the season, it kind of does. And that's what's so messed up about this is because we get these preconceived notions without seeing any preseason games when rosters have massive turnovers. And a lot of times it comes down to, do you have your, are you returning your quarterback? Did you win your bowl game? And do you have a good head coach? And if you say yes to all those three things, then you're probably going to end up being ranked as a top 25 team as a power five program. In addition to what we saw in, you know, Washington go down, we saw a very similar storyline on Friday night. Virginia Tech enter Sandman. Lane Stadium was bumping in Blacksburg. And there were so many cool sights and sounds, so many cool, fun sights and sounds throughout the entire weekend. But enter Sandman, that 6 o'clock kickoff, I mean, the place was electric. And that stadium holds a lot of people. And they knock off UNC pretty handily now Sam Howell they made a push late to try to keep it a game but Virginia Tech looked really good it was a one touchdown game seven to ten 17 to 10 but if you watch the game it felt like Virginia Tech was in control of it from the start Sam Howell that offense is not what it was last year I thought they were going to take a little bit of a dip they took a big dip offensively but their defense looks way better than it did last year so my initial prediction being that I think UNC's offense will decrease a little bit and their, their defense will get a little bit better, leaving them in a really good middle ground. I think their offense has regressed too much and their defense is better, but they need the offense from last year. If UNC had this defense that they have this year going up uh, paired with the offense from last year, 
then the number 10 ranking probably works, but they lost way too many guys. And it's a long season and Clemson lost. So they have the same record right now. They're both 0-1. But the ACC is even looking a little bit suspect. This whole team, this whole week one was chock full of random randomness. And, and one of the things we love about college football is how ridiculously stupid it can be sometimes. And the, the best encapsulation of the entire week one was Sunday night, Notre Dame and Florida State. Back and forth early. Florida State, Tallahassee, they were going apeshit, absolutely bonkers in Tallahassee. They had the Bobby Bowden effect going, right? They lost legendary coach Bobby Bowden this year. Completely underestimated the impact that that would have. And at one point, you know, it's back and forth. Florida State's got the lead. Jordan Travis goes down. A couple of turnovers here and there. Uh, Jack Cohn throwing dimes left and right. Notre Dame wide receivers making plays. Big runs getting broken for touchdowns. I mean, this game was electric back and forth. And then the second half. And at halftime, they played Amazing Grace, the band did. If you can see the video of it, it's, it's chilling how beautiful it was. And then Notre Dame comes out of the second half and really takes you know, control of that game. I know Florida State scored early, but after that, it got all the way up to 38-20, to 20, an 18-point game. But here comes the Seminoles charging back, making a statement, getting it all the way down so, so close to scoring a touchdown that would have put them ahead. Instead, they settle for a field goal, tie the game. Mike Mayer drops a ball as Notre Dame is trying to make their final second push with like 50 seconds left in the game. They had one timeout left. Mike Mayer catches a ball in field goal range, goes right in and out of his hands, looked like he had it, couldn't hang on. He is, by many people's estimations, the best tight end in college football. Doesn't wear gloves, which I respect, but then you drop a key ball like that and people are saying, dude, why don't you have these, this technology that makes balls stick to your freaking hands? Game goes into overtime only to have Florida State in the overtime rules miss a field goal after the Mike Norvell kind of iced him, but you can't really argue. Anyone who's saying that they iced their own kicker is just completely fabricating what the context of the situation was. Okay. Mackenzie Milton who, again, his comeback story is amazing. We get into a little bit of that with Josh Neighbors. Mackenzie Milton goes to pump fake the ball. It slips out of his hand. Live on the field, people thought it was a fumble. So because of that, their, the line of scrimmage was on the 19-yard line. Well, after they reviewed it, they decided it wasn't a fumble. It was an incomplete pass, and the officials had set them up on the 31-yard line, making it a 51-yard field goal. And before the officials realized they messed up, there was a snap as Norvell's calling the timeout. And of course, the kicker drills the 51-yard field goal. But it's a 51-yard field goal. And if Norvell could have inevitably what should have happened and what did end up happening is that they moved the line of scrimmage back up to the 19 because it was an incomplete pass. So it goes from being a 51-yard field goal to a 37-yard field goal which of course you would rather have. 
10 times out of 10, you would rather have the 37-yard field goal, even though, yes, the kicker did make the 51-yarder as the officials blew the whistle because of the timeout. Saying that he iced his own kicker, I get it's low-hanging fruit, it's a joke, but you're also being completely ignorant to the actual context of what happened. Anyway, misses the field goal from 37 yards. Devastating for Florida State fans, only to have Notre Dame drill a 41-yard field goal to win it in overtime. It was the best game of the weekend by far. It was entertaining, back and forth, had some of the craziness. And then Brian Kelly says as he's getting off the field that, you know, we didn't execute well enough, but, you know, might need to might need to execute my team after this one. And people took it, like, seriously, and we're getting mad at him and all this crap. And I think for the most part, people were like, all right, why did he say that? It was kind of a weird thing to say. But there were some real people out there who were trying to get pissed and trying to cancel Brian Kelly for making a, granted, ill-timed joke. But that game is exactly why we love college football. Just absolute insanity. Absolute bedlam. It it really was spectacular. And the setting for it and Joe Tessitore with the big game voice on the call, my man Greg McElroy in the booth, it was, it was the quintessential moment of the weekend to me that just did a perfect job of being, this is college football and we are back. And as I'm recording this now, we got a Monday night game between Louisville and Ole Miss right now. It's zero, zero. That just kicked off itself. So to have college football back uh, and just football in general, but really college football, there is a, a specialness about it. The fan bases, the atmospheres jump around playing in Wisconsin, right? I mean, that was electric. The Bobby Bowden stuff, the Mackenzie Milton story. Like, there was just a million things I felt like every time, scrolling through Twitter, like I I couldn't keep my head on. I couldn't keep it all under the wraps because it just, it was just perfect. And the games, yes, the Clemson-Georgia game, was it the most entertaining game of all time? No, there were no offensive touchdowns scored, the difference being the pick six. But talk about two incredible defenses going head-to-head. I, I loved every second of watching that game. I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. The Penn State and Wisconsin game, 0-0 at halftime. I took the under on that one. I was very happy. I think I got it at like 43 and a half or something. And uh, it, it cleared very easily. All in all, Texas looked amazing. It was it was really, really great to have college football back. And uh, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, recapping our picks because both uh, Vito is out traveling, doing a bunch of stuff. Scotty, he's got a fantasy draft going on tonight. And uh, he's got some other stuff. He said he had to clean the gutters. Yuck. Have some fun with that, buddy. But. Our picks from last week, Scotty goes three and five. Not an ideal start, but it's a long season. I went four and four. And our man Vito was flaming hot, six and two on his picks against the spread for week one. Now, again, we're going to turn our, our focus on Thursday, on Thursday's pod, to be about the NFL. And there's some talk we might record on Wednesday if the schedules work out because would be fun to preview the Thursday night game, but to be honest, I think Tampa Bay is going to absolutely flatten Dallas, especially if they're missing two of their starting offensive linemen, which it seems like they will. 
But the NFL is right around the corner. And I'll tell you what, this Sunday, let's get ready. Because this Sunday is going to be awesome. We got Saturday and Sunday fill to the brim with football. With all that being said, let's go to our man, Josh Neighbors, kind enough to join me on the pod. Remember, Locked On uh, Podcast Network, Locked On Big 12 Podcast. You can also find them on their YouTube channel. We did kind of a home and home with this. So his YouTube channel will have the video of he and I talking. If you guys want to know what my room looks like, please don't. <laughs> please, please don't watch it. Um, but if you do want to see the video, that will be up on the Locked On Big 12 YouTube channel. Uh, and you'll get the podcast on the read option. So again, we did a little college football style, like I said, a little home and home. It was great. So uh, hang tight and we'll get you right on with Josh Neighbors. The Locked On Big 12 podcast. All right, we are now joined by my good friend, co-worker, host of the Locked On Big 12 podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh Neighbors underscore. It is my friend Josh Neighbors. How you doing, brother? I am well, Jeff. It's nice to come on. We're on your show in the audio version. And on yeah. the video version, we're on my show, which is I, I kind of like that. Pretty cool. It's a little, it's a little, it's like a home and home, right? Yeah, it's, it's got a exactly little exactly right, exactly yeah. right. And it's yeah, it's a twofer. I just uh, let's just try to make sure I'm not, you know, Washington losing and having <laughs> to pay five hundred thousand dollars to you. You know what I mean? Um, but look, I am excited. This is long overdue. Uh, I've been on your pod and I've mm -hmm. dragged my feet and have not had you on mine. So uh, it's a pleasure to have you, man. And look, week one, it's in the books. We we've not we've quite. Well, that's true. That's true. Not quite. We have one more to go. At the time of taping right now, yes. we do have Ole Miss taking on uh, Louisville tonight. Uh, who do you got in that, by the way? We'll see. The future, future us will uh, will probably Ole hate Miss. us for doing it. Ole, Ole you Miss. You got Ole Miss? I have Ole Miss. I also have the minus eight and a half, too. So I have a lot of faith in them. Too. I was I was just going to ask against the Even without Lane Kiffin. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Louisville's bad. It's more of a Louisville yeah. being bad thing. It's more about Ole Miss being good. Yeah, year two of Scott Satterfield. It'll be interesting to see uh, see how that turns out. Uh, but for the most part, week one is in the books. And we'll get into analysis stuff and break down some of the games. And, and you know, obviously week one, we can't glean too much from what we've learned. But we can learn. Uh, we saw some things we can take away from. But as, as a fan, and I've been asking people around college football this, what was the highlight of the weekend for you as a fan? Having college football back with people in the stands, there were a ton of great moments both on the field and off. So what was the thing that stood out to you uh, after week one? Well, as a, so a, two, two angles as a fan. One, I am a Virginia Tech fan. So I mm. worked four to six Eastern Standard Time uh, on Friday. So right when the show ended that I was working, I hopped right off and I put the television on. My grandparents were actually in town. They were uh, Virginia Tech season ticket holders for 45 years. So I was able to sit down with them and watch the game. Obviously seeing Enter Sandman for the first time was a great experience. I know a lot of people were there. And then to go and watch Virginia Tech actually beat a top 10 team at home Something that I mean, I can't remember them doing. That was a great moment for as a fan. Then also, just this Saturday, you know, uh, obviously it locked on Big Twelve, but having games in all three windows, you know, I, I had two TVs going and I was I was locked in. I had Kansas State and Stanford with mm -hmm. Oklahoma on early. Um, I had West Virginia, Maryland, and then Texas and Louisiana 
in the middle of the day, checking in on the Iowa State UNI game, and at at night, Baylor, Texas State, and uh, Houston, and then Texas Tech. So just being able to sit there and have something all day long on both screens was a really gratifying experience, I think. Absolutely. It's, you know, like our, like our man Mark Packer says, right? Just got to get it all over you. Just fully, <laughs> fully immersed in college football. And I felt the same way. I, honestly, so I've gone back and forth. I thought the game last night, the Florida State-Notre Dame mm-hmm. game, there was something about it was an incredible game. It was back and forth, basically the – well – for the first half, and then Notre Dame breaks out in the third quarter, and then we see this awesome 18-point comeback, and Jordan Travis and the Mackenzie Milton story, which I thought, I mean, that that storyline, yeah. you know, it wasn't made as big of a deal as the Alex Smith thing, because obviously Mackenzie Milton doesn't quite have the same, you know, name power that and a quarterback who's been a starter in the NFL for the better part of 15 years would. Right. But I thought that storyline, him coming back, first game in three years, basically, almost three years, and the tribute to Bobby Bowden at halftime, the, the band played Amazing Grace, which was mm-hmm. chilling. But in terms of just those moments where you're like, fans are back, we're in it, I jump around, hit yeah. differently. And and I would say yeah. Ender Sandman did too. Now, as a JMU alum, I also have fond memories of Lane Stadium, you know, <laughs> Just saying, yeah, you know, that's true. Made sense. That's very, you know, that's very true. We talked about Montana FCS team knocking mm-hmm. off a ranked opponent. JMU is on that list against yeah. Tech, uh, an all-time moment. But it was great to have fans back, and I think everyone was was getting ready leading up for the game, right? Top five matchup, Week One, Clemson, Georgia. It didn't lead up live up to the hype in the way that traditionally we might think, but right. it was a really entertaining game in terms of two elite level defenses going head to head. My question for you though is involving just the top five, right? The big five we consider: Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma. Of those f- uh, five times, those five games, I should say, I guess four games technically. Which of those were the most eye-opening to you, positive and negative? If, if, if there's one that really blew you out of the water and said, wow, this team is legit, or one that maybe you're starting to kind of raise an eyebrow at? Yeah, uh, I just look back real quickly to the Notre Dame game. So, like, that game has everything about college football that makes it just this weird, amazing sport. You have the comeback. You have the Bobby Bowden. You have the game, you know, the, the McKenzie Milton comeback and the actual literal comeback in the game. Also, you have the just bizarre execution statement after oh the game, God, yes. which you and I, so you and I, full disclosure, were working last night, mm-hmm. and we totally, we totally missed it because we had the audio feed from Florida State on, so yeah. we missed this just this bizarre comment. So really, had that game had like all the weird things about college football that we love. I just saw like trending on Twitter and people being like, oh no, Brian Kelly. And yeah, we were getting ready to go on air. And I was like, what is everyone freaking out about Brian Kelly? We're trying to get audio together and get our, you know, our, our, you know, crap in a row. And eventually, you know, we kind of, we kind of stumbled on it. Um, So again, of those top five teams, which was the one, the the biggest eye opener, positive or negative? So I'll go, I'll go Big 12 first. Um, Oklahoma. Tom Luganbill said this the other day, they they were reading the press clippings too much. Mm-hmm. Um, they got punched in the mouth by Tulane. Not once, not twice, but three times, I would say, in this game. Yeah. They went down, they threw the pick, they went down, and then, and then the lot of score. Um, they tied 7-7, and then Tulane came right back down and scored. 
They got a major lead. They really showed how good of a team they are in that back part of the first half. And then Tulane goes on this massive comeback. They only allowed three points second half. At halftime, uh, Oklahoma had 37. They ended up the game with 40. Also, Tulane had the ball with a chance to win in Norman after they got displaced after a hurricane. Like, Oklahoma got that game at home and could not put a displaced Tulane team away. And I thought it was because they were undisciplined. Lincoln Riley even said as much afterwards. So on a negative end, look, I heard a lot of people saying, same old Oklahoma defense. I, I don't buy that at all. It's one game, and they clearly lacked focus. Mm. This stuff builds. Let, let me see them when they play Kansas State in a month because Kansas State looked pretty good against Stanford. But let me see them there. Let me see if they can build there. But I would say from a how'd-you-look standpoint, there's that. And then on the flip side, Alabama just drilling Miami. I mean, they were so prepared both sides of the ball. Now, Miami's not as tough of a test as Clemson is, so I want to give Georgia's defense their flowers. You were talking about prepared. That group threw the kitchen sink at Mm -hmm. DJ Uyunglele, and he could not handle it. Their offensive line couldn't handle it. So I would say negative side, Oklahoma. Positive side, Alabama. And a positive side, too, especially – the top performer of the weekend was Georgia's defense. I thought Georgia's defensive line, you know, because for the most part, they were rushing four and playing mm-hmm. two deep safety basically the entire game. Yeah. And they would send an occasional blitz. But and I think there was some expectation that that might happen when when you have your head coach and Davos Sweeney saying we might have to rotate centers. You know, we hear about rotations of wide receivers right. and running backs and DNs. You don't talk about rotating offensive lineman let alone your center right who the especially when you're talking about communication when you have to double team guys and it was a four on five and georgia won single-handedly it was like the alabama basketball game a couple years ago when they literally had like three guys on the court and they still almost won the game right it was amazing that they just took their four guys and they said we're gonna beat you here and we're gonna take away everything in your passing game they couldn't run the ball they couldn't do anything and to clemson's credit I thought Clemson was really, really good defensively. You know, yeah. we we know Brett Brett Venables is one of the best defensive coordinators. He's the highest paid defensive coordinator in football, at least in college football. Probably the NFL too. I mean, he yeah, makes I mean, like a million honest, dollars yeah. a year. Yeah, yeah. So he he's at least up there if he's if he's right. not. But that team came ready to play. I think the JT Daniels Heisman buzz has calmed. It's still going to be a long season and. You know, until they have to play Alabama, if inevitably they end up playing Alabama in the SEC championship game, you know, that's going to be the the toughest uh, offense that or the toughest defense that they have that they will go up against. That Clemson defense came to play. And, I, yeah. and you got to give you know, you got to give both sides credit. The pick there right. was no offensive touchdowns. There's two field goals and the pick six was the difference. maker. Well, it's what's interesting is a couple of things. The the you mentioned it with the, the center rotation, the inside pressure all day from guys like Jordan Davis. Everybody mentions it all the time. That's what ultimately disrupts a quarterback more than anything else because it knocks you off your line, mm-hmm. right? There's no pocket if there's inside pressure. It's it it, it literally splits the splits the pocket into two pieces. Yeah, they we're talking about what a pocket looks like, and so their ability to generate inside pressure, they were running stunts and twists, and like you mentioned, four or five guys, it didn't take much. Georgia's defense, well-known for keeping everything in front of them. That extra man, they didn't have to rush six guys. Five was enough for them, and oftentimes 
four was enough. But if they wanted to get there quick, they'll send that fifth guy. And like you mentioned, Clemson's defense too. I always say that a bad offensive line kills everything. We've seen it for Florida State for the last four or five years now, right? A bad offensive line wrecks your entire game plan because your offense can't get going. You're put, you're constantly putting your offense in bad and long situations. It also puts your defense in a lot of bad situations because either the offense gets backed up or, and the defense on the field for a long time, or the offense makes mistakes, putting the defense in pretty bad spots. So I think with Clemson, with how Clemson's defense, you're totally on it. With how many bad spots their offense put them in, they played a phenomenal game. They really mm-hmm. played a phenomenal game. Now, I, I think Georgia's got some serious limiting factors on offense. They were missing a lot of guys that they expected to have out there. But that's not an excuse, right? This year, we know everybody's been missing guys, whether it be COVID, injuries, you know, Eric mm-hmm. Gilbert's weird situation. But I think you're spot on with the way that that game went down. And, um, you know, we expected a, a kind of a classic and a Big Ten football game broke out. That's kind of what we got. Or Steelers-Ravens, if you will, really broke out. What, what's your take on that, by the way? Because there was a lot of people who were really upset that there was a lot of negative talk surrounding, uh, you know, the the Penn State and Indiana or Penn State and Wisconsin game and people how bored everyone was. It was 0 0 at halftime, which that, right. I mean, Georgia and, and Clemson was almost 0 0 at halftime as well. The fa- those two games mirrored each other eerily similar, similarly, you know, with the blocked field goal and then the missed field goal. Like right. there was, there was a lot of mirroring there. D- to me, I, I don't know. I'm an optimist when it comes to football. I was happy to have football back. I just was yes. enjoying seeing defenses kind of going after it, you know, seeing two elite defenses and then two really good defenses in the Big Ten. But do you buy into the the narrative side that somehow we view the Big Ten differently because of the, you know, the history of yeah. low scoring kind of grinded out types of games in the Big Ten? I'm an anti-Big Ten guy, and this is this is why. <laughs> so this is why. They have the same problem in basketball, too. Like, think about basketball. Like, yeah. Kofi Coburn and uh, – who is Luca Garza. Luca Garza. Who was the big kid Purdue had? Well, they have Trivia Williams this past year. Um, Caleb Swanigan, massive yeah. guy. Remember that guy? You know, big um, – John Teske, and then oh, he can step out a little bit. And then what are the big kids? Uh, I forget his name. For Even, like, Frank year. Kaminsky. Like, right. you know, like the And so it's built yeah. off of – yeah, Wisconsin's slow pace. Like Wisconsin, um, Big Ten football, besides Ohio State, and besides, I, I think Penn State does deserve some credit. I think Penn State tries to be a bit more athletic with what they do, but like, I, and credit to Iowa because Iowa put their foot on Indiana's neck from the word go. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the reason why I could say I enjoyed the Georgia game a bit more was because the level of, of athlete, the level of talent on that field is just a bit different. I know Penn State can they, – they they really do threaten with the recruiting. They've done a really good job there. Yeah. But, like, the level of, of player that <laughs> that Georgia had in the defense, the, the front line for Clemson on defense, like, it's just next-level elite. And that's why, even though the game was complete crap in, in a certain way, there is a certain level of elite appreciation – that we can have for a couple of those units on the field where like Graham Mertz shot. I mean, Penn state let Wisconsin have a chance to win that game multiple times. And Graham Mertz goes, no, I'm good guys. You take it. Penn state can have that. Yeah. And and I would say too, I mean, there's a certain level of 
perception involved, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we're talking about two top five recruiting classes year in, year out for the last half decade, at least basically since Clemson and Dab, you know, Dabo has been there. We're talking about just elite level guys, the guys they put into the NFL, Georgia, it's very well documented. And we're seeing guys who are going to be first round drafted talents. Not to say that there aren't a couple of those guys sprinkled in on Wisconsin or on Penn state, but we're talking about like legit five-star dudes. So that, yeah. That's it's a great it is a great point. And I would also say there's an excitement when you know that DJ Uyunglele can throw a bomb for a touchdown anytime. Same thing with JT Daniels. You know, we're talking about two guys who are number one recruiters and you know, number one recruits in their in their classes, respectively, uh, just despite being a couple years apart. And so that threat of there's go there could be a bomb, there could be a touchdown at any given moment kind of keeps you invested as opposed to watching Graham Mertz and Sean Clifford, who both of which like you know, pointed out had yeah. uh, disappointing days to kind of to kind of say the least. Though <laughs> so that one Jahan D- uh, Dotson touchdown was was yeah, sick. it was sick. That was sick. But the, yeah, no, you're spot on with that. And look, like they, D, you know, JT Daniels goes 22 for 30 for 135. It's 4.5 yards per completion. Mm-hmm. DJ Williams 19 for 37, 178, 4.8 yards per completion. I mean, these guys are like you said, top line guys, and to shut them out. It does take a high-level effort. Like I don't think those guys shot themselves in the foot that much. I do think it was the defense inducing those mistakes that we saw them make. Yeah, no question. Uh, let's move over to your your neck of the woods, Big 12. Obviously, that's where you cover. So we talked a little bit, Oklahoma, What? yeah, right over the shoulder there. Uh, Oklahoma definitely had a, a disappointing showing. Despite holding on to win, I think most OU fans would be upset. A lot of people thought they got outplayed. I think that's honestly a pretty fair uh, a song, you know, a- analysis of the game. Fair I do think they, yes. they, they got outplayed. Meanwhile, the other Big 12 team, at least temporary Big 12 team in Texas, had a fantastic showing, covered the nine points, beat a good Louisiana program. When you look at those two teams, which and those two games in particular, which do you think is more indicative of how the rest of the season will go? Do you think Texas is as good as they showed, or do you think Oklahoma maybe not may not live up to the hype that perhaps we were anticipating? I'm going to go with the game I was more wrong about. That would be the Texas game. So I actually mm-hmm. thought Louisiana was going to come in and win. I thought a lot of the comments that Steve Sarkeesian was making leading up to this game were telling that he did not feel good about his quarterback situation and that Hudson Card had kind of backed into the job as opposed to winning it outright. And for a lot of my watchers on YouTube, this is the game that actually got the most flack about. A lot of Texas people told me I was wrong. I should trust Sark. And those people, I'll tell you, you were right. You All of you guys were right. Hudson Card managed this game perfectly. You know, it's hard to appreciate how good B. John Robinson is mm-hmm. until you watch. And uh, he's just better than like every like most of most guys he's better than the best player in the field mm-hmm. he was the best player on that field on on saturday and they found effective ways to get him the ball in space i thought they found effective ways to get all the guys the ball in space roshan johnson Bijan robinson jordan whittington i thought they did a great job getting those guys into space i thought casey thompson's appearance was well managed i like steve sarkeesian as a coach i actually think he's going to do well at texas I just thought it would – I thought to see a well-organized result like this, the way that we saw it was a well-oiled machine, very – not want to say Alabama-ish, but in terms of like getting the job done with a bunch of kind of new pieces on offense, 
or you kind of new meshing, new coach, whatever it is you want, whatever you want to say on offense. I thought that was impressive to have a new coach, new quarterback, and to have them look as smooth as possible to have a running back who was underused and get him the correct amount of touches, get him to the right places and get things accomplished and done like they did. Um, a plus plus. I think that is a performance that's indicative of what Texas can be. The question is, can you consistently deliver that performance? And maybe Arkansas gives us an idea on on Saturday night, yeah. but we'll see. But I, I think against that kind of competition coming in to deliver that, that was, that was impressive to me. I was blown away and I, I tend to agree with you because I don't th- I think Oklahoma came out flat and I think they have dudes. I think given kind of everything that went on and I think Tulane was coming out with something a little bit special, you know, like mm-hmm. I, everything that happened with the hurricane being displaced and then to inevitably show up like it was just one of those things where they just it's so cliche. And I know a lot of former athletes hate when you say this. But I think they just kind of wanted it more. Like, yes, they both- did want it. Oh, they definitely wanted it more. Yeah, they like, definitely wanted that game more. Because it's it's like a dumb thing to say. It's like obviously both sides want it. Both sides yeah. want to win the game. But I I do think sometimes there's one side, and maybe wanting it more is just our colloquialism as as a way to kind of you know convey the same idea, and we don't really have a word for it. But there was just a certain amount of energy that they brought that Oklahoma just didn't. And so I think Oklahoma's going to be fine. I think Lincoln Riley's going to rip into them this week, and I think they're going to come out rolling here next week. And have a much easier matchup here in week right. two as well. And Because Tulane, look, I mean, Tulane, Tulane was in a conference championship you know, within the last two years. Like that, we're not talking about some no-name startup program. And they're well co- – like Bill Clark yeah. is a really good coach. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thought they, I thought they did a, a – a, Great job. And I think Oklahoma, again, they knew everything that was coming. Like that was a really telling quote that I don't know if I think it was Lincoln Riley. It might have been Alex Grinch. But one one of them had said, you know, we weren't surprised by anything that they did. And that is concerning. When you knew when you were they didn't throw any wrinkles at you, you just got outplayed. You know, that the talent that's on OU's defense is there. And I think the defense will end up being better. But to go to Texas for a second, I think I was high on Texas in this game. I called it a must win because mm. not just for their season, but to to put a stamp on this. You know, Tom Herman came out flat in his. Charlie Strong came out flat in his first game at Texas. And Texas is, in my opinion, I think the hardest job in America because of everything you have to deal with away from football. During Big 12 media days, a lot of Steve Sarkeesian's comments about you know being you know his experience as a head coach like we've always that's never been a question right like his time at washington his time at usc steve sarkeesian the football coach is a good football coach and and we know that my biggest question what we never really saw was steve sarkeesian the person was kind of what was holding them back and when he came out in media days and said you know i used to make it about me when we won it was because of me when we lost it was other things and he got humbled based off of everything that happened in his personal life, going to the NFL, working with, you know, the Falcons for a couple of years, and then going in and going to the Nick Saban School of Rehabilitated Coaches. And now he's got an opportunity to be the more improved version of himself while still being the elite football coach that he is. And Carson Hurd, man, like, I was blown away. Hudson Card. Sorry. Hudson Card. I switched the names. Yes. Um, Don't worry. Uh, our, our 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 friend Chris Plank called him Kate Hudson last week. So that, you're, you're not you're, you're totally I, fine. I do that all the time where I'll just flip the first. It's like Hudson Card's not dyslexia. a normal name either. Not yeah. a normal name. Hudson. No. Card. 
Hudson Card, uh, he looked phenomenal. Like, like I, the comfortable, how comfortable he was throughout every stage of it. And I think that is a Steve Sarkeesian thing. You know, we saw what he did with Mac Jones. We saw, and I think a lot of what we saw the Bryce Young on Saturday also directly ties into the job that Steve Sarkeesian did with him last year. We saw him get the most out of guys like Jalen Hurts and Tua. And now all three guys are, are going to be starting quarterbacks. And I think we're going to see the same thing at Texas. And the way that they were able to get the ball into B. John Robinson's hand in space to make plays, as you alluded to, I mean, that touchdown catch, I mean, there wasn't, he's the best player no, on the field and there was nobody no one with 15 yards yep. and he walked into the end zone. Uh, so I'm with you. I think Texas is really good. And this leads me to the team that I think most people were excited about in the big 12 was Iowa state who got by, by the skin of their teeth to Northern Iowa on Saturday. Are we starting to get worried Especially after what we saw out of Texas, or has your confidence level wavered at all? Obviously, we're going to learn a lot this weekend when they take on Iowa. But has your confidence level wavered at all after Week One with Iowa State? They're notoriously slow starters. Like that is, if there is a knock against Iowa State, is the fact that they really do tend to start slow some seasons. And this, this was 110 percent a slow start, in my opinion. Um, they'd end up getting the job done and I'm, I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to lose a ton of faith. I'm not. Um, I just, I just think that they got a lot of the jitters out of this week. I think this was that, this is what that was. This is a team with so much expectation and maybe there's more of those jitters this week, but you know, They've answered a lot like a lot of times when big questions are asked of them, they do answer. They they beat Oklahoma last season. Um, they almost beat them a second time. You know, they ended up beat Oregon, they beat Oregon in the in the, in the championship game. They throttled West Virginia down the stretch last year. And West Virginia were people starting to say, Oh, could this be a pretty good team? They have a good way of answering questions. So the performance was not good. My concern level is not high. My concern level for this week is really just the fact that Iowa might be a really good football team. But <laughs> Iowa yeah. kind of looks like I like. Here's the thing: Spencer Petrus does not scare me that much. So I think if Iowa State can get up in this game this coming week, they're going to be fine. But they got to get to that point. They got to get up in this game and make put pressure on Iowa to come from behind. And for that, they can't be slow starters in the game. They can't be slow starters this season because this is a team that's got some lofty goals and. You know, like what what's the finished product going to be? We don't know yet. We really don't know. And the same can be said for Oklahoma. So it's about time for Iowa State. I know it's early on, but they got to start kicking themselves in the rear end and start getting things going. Yeah, I, and it's I, I love your your point there about if Iowa State can get ahead, I think they're going to be in a good spot in that game because I, I'm with you 100 percent there. I think if Iowa State gets a lead, they will be able to run the ball with Brees Hall. And, and at least try to control the game. I think Iowa, as good as they looked, I think it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors. I do think they're a really good football team. But from the second half on, two of their touchdowns were from pick sixes. And from the second half on, they were pretty mediocre on offense. Yes, they scored a couple touchdowns, but they had opportunities to, to blow out Indiana by more than they even did. And their defense was was really, really good. And I think Michael Penix 
I mean, he looked really bad. He looked. He's, like he, he's coming off a major injury too, so it's like 100%. You know, how much? How much can we really read into to that performance? But yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on that. I'm just. I think this game is super fascinating. I, I do too, and I think it's going to be why I like it for Iowa State is as a team that does start slow, it's going to be a defensive battle. And I think both defenses are going, it's good. Both teams are going to try to run the ball. They're going to try to score early. And I think whoever gets that lead first will probably end up holding on to it because especially if it's like a multi-score game, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to score points against enough points to get back into it. So I think whatever team plays better on defense is ultimately going to do it. But looking at Iowa state, this is kind of a perfect matchup in, in terms of if you're going to have a top 25 matchup as a slow starting team, this is going to be kind of like a pick them. And they yeah. get the home field advantage. Iowa's got to come to them, even though it's still in state. I think the atmosphere in Ames is going to make a big difference here. It's early into the week, but do you have a lean? Which way do you think this, this game will go? I, I am leaning Iowa State, and I, I really am leaning that direction because I think – I think Matt Campbell has to take a look at this game and say, look, they expect us to come out and try to, you know, we're both teams are trying to run the football. Like don't just be that team. Teams are going to try to take away Brees Hall from the get go. That's what teams are going to do. They're going to zero in on that part of the team, but this is an offense that's got so many, it's so many weapons they can use, whether it's Brees Hall out of the backfield. They just try to get him in space a bit more, but Xavier Hutchinson, uh, Tariq Milton, Charlie Kolar, uh, you know, even Chase Allen, you know, they've got so many guys that are that, that are able, able players that right now I am leaning towards Iowa State. There are four point favorites. And I think the fact that I, I think they're going to punch first early. And if they can get that seven nothing lead, that 10 nothing lead. Spencer, like, I'll take my chances against Spencer Petras. I really will. So I'm leaning towards Iowa State right now. I, I actually agree with you, but my my biggest concern with that. And, and this is kind of, I guess, the next thing I want to ask you about. Brock Purdy last year was very underwhelming with the expectations going into it. And the big separator should be at the quarterback position between these two teams. Because I think for the most part, they're pretty evenly matched. I do think Iowa State has better guys. I do think Brees Hall is going to be the best player on the field. But if you're going position by position, the biggest disadvantage gap should be between uh, Brock Purdy and Petrus. And after what we saw last year and what we saw in the Northern Iowa game, I'm not sure I see that. I'm not sure we've seen the Brock Purdy of two years ago. Yeah. And, and and that they need that if they're going to be a national contending team like everyone wants them to be. He's just got to be consistent. It's really right. That's what it comes down to. It's like he's so inconsistent. I mean, he was horrible the first half against Baylor last year. Lights out in the second half. Great against West Virginia. Awesome against Oklahoma in the second half of that game, and then bad in the very end. Like I'm with you, he's gonna put it all together. And as an NFL prospect, I'm not very high on him. But mm-hmm. as a college quarterback, the guy can be an upper level college quarterback. It's just like the whole quarter by quarter, down by down basis thing that really kind of gets him sometimes. He sh- he should be. He's got the talent too. He's got the offensive line, and he's got weapons. You know, the wide receiver room at Iowa State is is not great, but it's it's no. good, good. You it's know, good enough, yeah. You have Charlie Kolar, who's one of the best tight ends in football, and you have one of the best running backs in football and, and a great offensive line. There there shouldn't the, the excuses are are starting to wear thin when it comes to why haven't we seen 
the Brock Purdy that we expect. And look, these are their kids, right? Like I always, you always have to keep them in the back of your mind, right? We're talking about college level kids. Like it's so easy. One little thing, guy's girlfriend breaks up with him, right? Like right. One, one little thing can completely throw these guys off. But it's just, it's been a long time since we've seen the Brock Purdy that we talked about as a, you know, as a top quarterback in college football last year. He wasn't that. And he had moments, right? But they need him to be that Brock Purdy this weekend. They need him to at least be above average. If they get the Brock Purdy from last week, I don't think – I don't know if they get out of this game. I really don't because that's supposed to and, – and Pete just played well. But, I mean, he's got to win that. He's got to be the better – uh, of the two, but I am with you. I am leaning slightly towards Iowa State. I just like the roster a little bit better. But look, Kirk Ferentz is look, he's he's been at Iowa for a long time. Forever. He's, he's been there for a long time for a reason. Because the guy knows how to win football games. And and they're in that class of Kyle Whittingham and Utah. And some of these teams are they'll be really, really good for a year and then they kind of reload and build up. And this should be one of those, you know, really built up rosters that Iowa has. A uh, couple last things here before we, we wrap up. The game of the weekend to me was the one we had last night, Florida State and mm-hmm. Notre Dame. Everything in it, like we talked about at the beginning, the pageantry of it all, Tallahassee was on fire, the theatrics, the missed field goal at home, the the, the icing his own kicker, which it's hard for anybody to criticize Mike Norvell for doing that because it, it went from a 51-yard field goal to what a 37 yard field goal yeah it was they were on the you and i talking about it the 21 yard line yeah like that there's there's there should be no revisionist history of oh why'd you call the time out there it's that was the logical thing to do and kudos to the florida state kicker for drilling the 51 yarder yeah it's just a shame he ends up kind of hooking the the second one there and notre dame goes on to win um about these two teams florida state to me and I've been high on this since they hired him because my one of my best friends is a Florida State fan, diehard. And he was pretty emotionally scarred from the Willie Taggart era, to, to say the least. And he said, man, I just don't know if I believe in this team. I don't know if I believe in the in the future of this. Mike Norvell gets hired, and he was skeptical. And I said, I, I think he got the guy. And it start, remember, it started off, there was almost a mutiny last year on that right. Florida State team. And what we saw was a really, really good, impressive outcome in year two but last year it's you know there's an asterisk so we'll say you know year one and a half basically for them question simply is mike norvell the guy in your opinion i think uh, the question is this can he build an offensive line because florida i mentioned earlier florida state's issue is at quarterback think about all the number of talented guys who have walked through that door in the last five years. And the fact they have not been able to figure out which one is good enough to play quarterback, it might not be the quarterbacks who are the issue because it's hard to figure out how good a quarterback is if he's on his back the entire time. And you even saw it some last time. Like I thought I thought their run blocking, excuse me, was really good, but they had to move the pocket a lot last night. And that's something that you have to do when your offensive line's not very good. You got to get them moving out, you know, moving in, in a couple of directions an extra tight end there to block and then nice shovel pass play that they ran. But like, that's, that's stuff they have to do. They have to get to a spot though, where they can pass block. They need mm-hmm. to be able to pass block. So they can so they can figure out who the best quarterback is. I think Mackenzie Milton should be the best quarterback they have right now, but I like Mike Norvell. I, I want to say he's the right guy. 
But you could even make the argument Scott Satterfield, you know, was the right guy. And then he went eight and five and sucked the next year. And and now we're kind of in a weird spot. Yeah. So I think he is. It's just, can he build the offensive line again? And they looked a lot better last night, but that's just one game. So step in the right direction. Can they do it consistently? Because that's team. So they beat UNC last year, right? Parts of last night, they were on fire. Parts of last night, they were crap. They got to figure out what's the, what's the in-between. It's tough, too, because it's interesting that you said you would uh, you would lean more towards Mackenzie Milton. And I think Mackenzie Milton is the better quarterback. But for this team, I think it might have to be Jordan Travis because of right. the mobility, right? The offense, the, the interceptions, the turnovers, like that is the downside of having Jordan Travis in there because he's not as good of a quarterback. And, and despite him being there now for what, for the thing this is his fourth season at Florida State, He's just he hasn't developed when it comes to the decision making aspects of playing quarterback and hit. But his athleticism opens them up in a way, not only in the running game, but in the passing game as well, because, look, everyone's covered. All right, I'm going to take it. Mackenzie Milton, we saw a couple of times, took some bad sacks down the stretch that almost really hurt. I mean, again, if that if that pass that we talked about that set up the icing of the field goal in overtime, if that stays rolled a fumble. You know, that that's something that probably doesn't happen under Jordan Travis because he kind of right. scrambles around and gets space. But it, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if, if you don't, because you have to live with the turnovers with Jordan Travis. So I, yeah. I think Norvell's the guy, but you're right. And, and the other thing, too, is not only investing in the offensive line, and, and they've started to do this, but it's investing in the program. It's investing in the facilities. One of the interesting things I, I heard a lot about, and Andrea Adelson talked about this, was – the way Bobby Bowden ran Florida state was running it like a mom and pop shop. You know, they didn't invest millions and millions of dollars into facilities. He didn't take massive raises. He did everything through his, his fundamentals, the three F's right. Faith, family, football. Mm-hmm. And in modern college football, that just doesn't work. You need things to sell the kids that aren't just come play for Bobby Bowden or Jimbo Fisher. You need to invest. And that was part of the reason why Jimbo decided to leave us, you know, in addition to $75 million to, to go to Texas A&M. So if they invest in the offensive line, obviously from a recruiting standpoint, but if they continue to build up the facilities, the program as a whole, I think they're on the right track. And I think Norvell, young guy, he's going to be there for what seems to be the long haul. As long as they like if this year they're at eight wins, if they finish eight and four. Oh, they're eight that's wins. A they're huge so season. happy. Yeah. That's a huge season. And the fact that they almost beat Notre Dame last night, and there's an argument to be made, probably should have, or at least gone to double overtime, uh, is very indicative of that. Um, last thing I want to hit with you here, and I know you're sick of talking about it, and everyone else in college football is sick of talking about it, and we don't have to break down the OU in Texas or any of that side of it. But there was a report, there was a meeting that went on today, Monday the 6th, um, of the presidents from all of the Big 12 schools discussing what the applications will look like for BYU, Houston, uh, UCF, and Cincinnati. Is this the right call for the Big 12? I know they're in scramble mode. I know they, they're, they're going to want an XTV contract, and getting the new states involved is going to help with that. But are those the four right teams, and is this way going about it, trying to replace with four, is that going to be enough? I might have switched. Um, might have switched UCF with Memphis hmm. or SMU. Um, I think I think this is the right move. I think from a from a basketball standpoint, like 
even without Texas and Oklahoma, this is one of the best basketball conferences in the country. Um, you've got pillar programs such as Baylor, West Virginia, and obviously Kansas is your true anchor in that sense. Cincinnati's a really good basketball program. BYU obviously has a history. UCF's more on the up and come up, and uh, Houston was in the Final Four last year. So, you know, this th- they fit in that sense. For football, I think all of those teams – I mean, look, Kansas is in the Big 12, so <laughs> I can pretty much guarantee you that all of those teams won't finish last in football, although I do like Lance Leifold a lot. This is this is the right move. This is the move to make now. And all the other conferences said we're not expanding. Uh, you know, everything else happening right now, I think this is the right move. It strengthens these other schools. It strengthens their position. And that's a fun conference, man. I mean, UCF, Cincinnati, Oklahoma State, um, you know, these are all BYU. I mean, these are all really solid football programs. You think about like Houston's really, they got a lot of issues. They got some stuff to sort out. But, but they have Dana the, Holgerson who has experience in the Big 12. Yes. Which is uh, I, yes. which I think is if, huge. If they if, if they end up keeping Dana Holgerson, yes. <laughs> I yes, I, I totally agree. But yes, it's the right move. It's the right time considering all the factors around them. This was the move they had to make with like what you mentioned, another upcoming TV contract. They had to make this move right now. Yeah, I'm with you. The other Houston, interesting Houston wrinkle too is from 10 years ago. You know, when they wanted to get into the Big 12 and were essentially blackballed from gaining access to it. And, and it went to like the court system and to like the state court of, of the state of Texas. Yeah, Tillman Fertitta and Bob Bowlesby are not, they are not uh, on each other's Christmas card list. That is for no. sure. But it is interesting to see them kind of, uh, you know, being okay, maybe, you know, settling, realizing that there might be bigger fish to fry. And it's also telling. Maybe maybe that James Harden deal to the Sixers, even after Dale Morey left, maybe that was actually on the table. Maybe that actually was going to happen. There wasn't as much animosity between Fertitta and Daryl Morey as we all thought. Uh, look, man, I really appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Long, like I said, long overdue for the read option listeners at Josh Neighbors underscore host of the Locked On Big 12 podcast has a phenomenal job. Good buddy of mine. And uh, I appreciate you coming on and to all the Locked On Big 12 YouTube viewers. Hello. Thanks for letting me come on and crash host this for you guys. This has been a lot of fun. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yes, man. Of course. It's always, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. Really good to Huge shout out again to my man, Josh. Really, really fun getting a chance to uh, to talk ball with him, man. I mean, he, he lives and breathes Big 12, but he's also a huge, huge college football guy as a whole. I've been on his podcast before. We, we talked about the NFL draft and we did a bunch of stuff and it was long overdue to have him on the read option. We will definitely be getting him on again as the season progresses. You know, we're going to have these shows where Scotty and Vito aren't able to hop on and it gives us an opportunity for me to reach out to people that I know love the game, that love podcasting, love being in this world. And, you know, the more people like that, we can get on the pod to get some different perspectives other than the three of us morons just shooting the shit with each other, you know, the, the better. Um, stay tuned. We have a full-blown NFL week one preview coming up later in the week. It will either drop Thursday morning before the, uh, the Bucks and the Cowboys play, or it will drop Friday morning as per usual. And we're going to tackle all of it. We'll get into a little bit of college football stuff as well. We're going to keep, keep up with our picks. We're going to start our picks against the spread for the NFL as well. Um, and get excited. We might even have the return of a of an infamous segment that we once did on another podcast with our man Vito. And uh, we probably don't have the licensing to be able to play the song we used to, but we called it Vito's Three-Way. And he would give us a three-way 
par three leg parlay and we would play let's get it on by marvin gay in the background and uh yes because we're 17 years old and we like to make inappropriate jokes because hey you always have the kid inside of you um shout out again josh neighbors thanks for coming on and we'll be back this was a, a really fun episode we don't do enough interviews on here and uh that's also going to be a part of what we're doing here this fall so get used to that thank you all for listening follow us at read option pod follow me on twitter at jeff underscore gimple and we will talk to y'all later in the week take it easy everybody